Welcome to Antiquity in Gotham, a podcast that explores how New Yorkers engaged with, reinterpreted, and understood antiquity. Now, most of the episodes in this podcast focus on the interpretation of ancient art and architecture in New York City and its environs, but today I want to focus on words. We live in a world of 143 characters, where people fire off quick-witted one-liners that attract the attention of the world. While some bemoan the advent of Twitter and condensed communications, citing the decline of literature, such abbreviated forms of communication are old and are all around us. In antiquity, especially in the Greek and Roman worlds, one would have been confronted by words on buildings, in the form of inscriptions, and on coins. So if you will, the Twitter and Instagram of the ancient world. So today with me is the scholar, Matt McGowan, who has worked extensively on ancient literature. He's an expert on Ovid, but today he's going to talk to us about the role of inscriptions and what scholars call Neo-Latin, i.e. Latin that is being used after antiquity, and the role that inscriptions, both in Latin and in English, play in New York City. So in full disclosure, Matt and I have just finished editing a book called Classical New York, Discovering Greece and Rome in Gotham, published by Fordham University Press which you can buy from Fordham, Amazon, or any good bookseller. So if you're intrigued by these podcasts or the accompanying website, you can learn more by reading our book, which has essays by different scholars on a range of topics. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lizzie. I'm delighted to be here. So I thought maybe before we even talk about how Latin and inscriptions are presented in New York City, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what inscriptions are and how they functioned in the ancient world. If I was walking around a Greek or Roman city, where would I encounter one? It's a good question. Inscriptions include, by definition, any writing that you find on buildings or monuments, that is, letters and words that are physically cut into stone or gilded or painted on the surface, and that usually convey something essential about the structure in question. Thus, inscriptions tend to be identifying markers, like the name of a place, or the company that uses the building, or the person that has erected a monument, or had something erected in his or her honor. In this way, inscriptions provide crucial information about a given structure and its purpose. For example, tombstones and funerary monuments are nearly always inscribed, at the very least with the name of the person commemorated, and often with other information, including birthday and day of death, perhaps the names of their parents, and even the place of origin and family history. More elaborate tombstones will often include some significant facts about the person and his or her profession or activity, that is to say, a devoted mother and wife, a soldier, a musician, a public servant. And these two are sometimes bestowed with a quotation from literature or scripture thought to capture something essential about the person and his or her life. Other important places where we encounter inscriptions are on public monuments and statue bases, where they also, again, provide key information about the structure in question, and they're meant to be read by people passing by. In fact, many funerary inscriptions from antiquity are addressed to passers-by, and we even see that in some funerary inscriptions from today. So what is interesting about that, that suggests a world in which the population is literate, at some level, or functionally literate. So do we know how many people could read? That's a tricky question. By definition, literacy means having the ability to read, speak, and compose in a language, usually on the basis of some formal education. That is, composing the Aeneid is something very different from ordering a beer in a bar. (laughs) Of course, 
the question of ancient literacy is fraught and hotly debated. But our colleague at Columbia, William Harris, for example, wrote a book on ancient literacy, and he offers a very low estimate of literacy among populations of ancient Greece and Rome to be never higher than 10%. This has been disputed by scholars, primarily by Romanists working in Pompeii and literary historians working on the likes of Cicero and Marshall, who seem to assume a much larger degree of literacy and a higher percentage of literate population in the late Republic and early Imperial Rome, at least. I think the truth about ancient literacy lies somewhere in between, that is, higher than 10%, but perhaps not, and certainly not over 40. But it often depends on when you lived and where you were. Thus, lengthy inscriptions from the Archaic period in Greece, that is from the 8th to the 6th century BC, are far fewer in number than in the classical and Hellenistic period, especially in major cities like Athens and Alexandria. The same is true of Rome. There are far more inscriptions from the 2nd century AD Rome than from the 2nd century BC. And this is not only a function or casualty, I should say, of history. But if we take let's say, early imperial Rome as our baseline, and why not? I'm talking about the first century, second century AD. A large segment of the Roman population could read. And even those who could not formally read, say, a poem of Virgil or Lucan, were nevertheless able to recognize certain familiar, that is usually official, formulations and inscriptions. So there's no doubt that writing on buildings and monuments in antiquity was ubiquitous, and the daily lives of Greeks and Romans were surrounded by words inscribed on. So basically, we are talking about a world where literature or words are certainly all around them, and this combination also of words and pictures together was very common. So one other place that certainly I, as somebody who deals with visual culture, always thinks about words being present are on coins. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about coins and the type of language and images that one would encounter on the coins of antiquity? Yes, indeed. The question of writing on ancient coins is a fascinating one and a rich topic for discussion that remains, of course, relevant today because so much of our own money is inscribed with words, even Latin words, like a pluribus unum, novus ordu seclorum, and Anuit Quaeptis. On coins is one of the most frequent places where the ancients would encounter writing. The primary purpose of writing on ancient coins, at least before the Roman imperial period, was to indicate who had made the coin. There was not one official mint, at least not in ancient Rome, but anyone with some silver, a scale, a hammer and a die, or cast, could pound out a coin. Obviously, it's not quite that simple, but the metal and the weight determined the value of a coin, which could come from diverse places throughout the Mediterranean and Greco-Roman world. Of course, coins from well-respected and well-known places like Athens, Antioch, Alexandria, and of course, Rome and its provincial capitals had a known value and was perhaps more highly respected and reliable than coins from other places. But ancient coins usually contain a mixture of writing and figural decoration on both sides, or what we call a coin's obverse and reverse. For example, from Athens, we often find the Athenian owl or the representation of Athena herself, together with the first few letters of the city, Athens. Romans usually like to convey something official, thus the head of the emperor or of some divine figure like Roma, Venus, Mars, and often a, a slogan in writing such as libertas, pax, concordia, and the like. So they tend to combine political imagery with key phrases, 
libertas restituta, which we'll, we can talk about perhaps later, in order to reinforce the party line. That is, they were a, a tool for propaganda. Yes, I mean, it's one thing that we maybe take for granted today, but money has always been a way that, in a sense, you get the official party line from whomever the government is, or in this case, the emperor or the republic. And I'll put some examples of reverses and obverses up on the website with the show notes so you can take a look at that. We think about quarters today, and now there are all these series with the different states on the back, and yeah. it's so cool. So it kind of shows that even our quarters today are going back in this really long tradition of using money to convey many different things. So today, the coins may be going out of style as we get more credit cards, which is kind of sad for me thinking about how beautiful it is to look at coins. But the kind of point you mentioned that we have these mottos like e pluribus unum, you know, out of many one, we see those on our coins, but if I was walking around New York City, I suspect I would run into either some English or some Latin when I wasn't expecting it. So if I was running around New York, where might I run into an inscription? Well, New York is simply covered in inscriptions, both English and Latin and other languages too. So there are lots of places to encounter inscriptions. And in that sense, it's not unlike classical antiquity, where we're surrounded by writing on stones and various surfaces that we encounter in our daily lives. But one of the most iconic inscriptions in New York, and one that we talk about in the book, in fact, is to be found on the facade of the New York Public Library's main branch, or what we know today as the Stephen A. Schwartzman Building. And as in classical antiquity, the letters are carved in a stately script that very likely goes back to the script that we find on the column of Trajan from the early 2nd century AD in Rome. So there's a durative quality to the, the very lettering of the inscription that connects that building back to the past, to ancient Rome. And it's connected in its architectural features, quite obviously, in other ways. It's indeed one of the most iconic neoclassical buildings in the city, one of the great gems of the Beaux-Arts tradition that we talk about in the book. But the inscriptions in particular are interesting, not merely for this quotation, I'll say, of the classical past, but for what information they convey about the history of the library. Indeed, we have three main inscriptions in English that identify the different sources from the 19th century of the early collection of the New York Public Library, which was established, or rather opened in 19. 11. So they start with, if we're looking from left to right, on the left we have the Lennox Library is recognized as uh, founded by James Lennox and dedicated to history, literature, and the fine arts. In the middle we have the Astor Library founded by John Jacob Astor for the advancement of useful knowledge. And on um, the right, we have recognized the Tilden Trust, founded by Samuel Jones Tilden, to serve the interests of science and popular education. And under each of the inscriptions, we have Roman lettering giving us the date of the foundation of those original three collections, which combine to form the core of the New York Public Library's collection. It's also interesting to note that as the building has been renamed, if you go in now, there's the inscription there again that says the Stephen A. Schwartzman building and that it has been renamed in honor of him. Oh yeah, and not one inscription, but a full five inscriptions. This is what uh, $100 million in unrestricted funds will get you, and perhaps rightly so. So we have on the Fifth Avenue entrance two 
inscriptions in much smaller letters, mind you, of uh, approximately two to two and a half inches, not the, the massive size and scale that we have on the original English inscriptions on the facade above, but inscribed into the columns on the entrance at 42nd Street, just in front of the door, there's a gold plaque with the name of Stephen A. Schwartzman. There are two other places where he is named on the 42nd Street side. And I think it testifies, first of all, to the library as a living entity and the importance of inscriptions in the identifying the place, now uh, significantly renamed in honor of, it must be said, a great philanthropist. Absolutely. And it's a very good reminder about how these inscriptions are testimonials that we walk by and we see and remind us. Or if somebody's new to New York City, they get introduced to the building and its iteration. So it's also, as you said, it's living. It's also kind of living history and the kind of the quality of, of these monuments which go on and the need for a kind of continual renewal and support for them, which makes it kind of different than, say, a funerary monument. But as I understand it, there are also some very interesting funerary monuments in New York City that use both English and Latin and other languages in their inscriptions. That's something you've worked on quite extensively. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about an interesting funerary monument in New York City. Well, there are just so many of them. And I love the question. I almost don't know where to start. But I think it's not unwise to start at the beginning, indeed, the very beginning of public monuments in the United States and the history of our country. And we find at the Chapel of St. Paul's downtown on Broadway, the first public monument commissioned by the nascent uh, United States in January of 1776 in honor of the memory of Richard Montgomery, who was an Irish-born British officer and then Major General under General Alexander Hamilton, no less, in the Continental Army, who died at the Battle of Quebec on December 31st, 1775. And with great speed, that is to say, within four weeks of his death, he already had a monument commissioned in his honor. The monument was, the commission rather, was sent to um, Benjamin Franklin in Paris. And Franklin then engaged the royal sculptor J.J. Jean-Jacques Caffieri to sculpt a monument in honor of Montgomery that was meant for Philadelphia. But due to the vicissitudes of politics and war, the monument finally made it to New York and to the facade at St. Paul's in uh, 1787, so a good 12 years after its commission, where it was installed in the following year by no less a designer than Pierre L'Enfant, who was the designer of Washington, D.C. L'Enfant put the monument in the chapel's east facade, where we can see it today, and it is inscribed in Latin and in English. Well, I should say that the different parts of the monument are inscribed in different languages, but the base of the monument contains information in English about Montgomery, where he was from and his service to the Continental Army. The monument is not surprisingly signed in Latin by Caffieri, who wrote or had inscribed rather in Venet et Sculpsit, Parisiis Johannes Caffieri Sculptor Regius Anno Domini and then the year. Signatures like this in Latin are standard and perhaps not even worthy of our mention, but it is certainly interesting that on a, a significant place in the monument, we have inscribed the Latin phrase 
libertas restituta, which means liberty restored, which is actually on the club, uh, which is probably the, the club of Hercules signifying France for reasons that we don't necessarily have to get into. What's interesting, I think, for our purposes considering Latin inscriptions in New York City is the origin of the inscription and that phrase, which was very common actually in ancient Rome and Roman history. We see already the phrase or the word rather libertas invoked with the likeness of the, the goddess Libertas, or freedom, by Brutus and Cassius to justify the assassination of Julius Caesar, whom they themselves likened to a repressive tyrant poised to snatch liberty from the free Roman people. The actual phrase Libertas Restituta became a popular slogan during the interregnum, which followed the downfall of the emperor Nero in 68 AD. And it's used by Caffieri in the Montgomery Monument, no doubt on Franklin's instruction to symbolize the colony's declaration of freedom from English hegemony, represented in the broken yoke smashed by Hercules' club, which is to say by the aid of France. So it's interesting to have uh, a monument like this that combines both Latin on the one hand invoking an illustrious Roman history of freedom from tyranny, but also an English, an extensive English inscription actually describing the life of the man being honored. So that's fantastically interesting, and I'm going to put some pictures again up with the show notes so people can take a look at it or just take yourself downtown and have a peek. But it also is an interesting point for us to understand that Franklin picked a Latin phrase. You know, he didn't just pick that out of the blue. That was part of the kind of political, intellectual culture of the era, and that it was totally suitable in a way to see parallels between the American colonists who had to, in a sense, restore their own liberty because the king had failed them, and that this was a kind of necessary thing in a way how Brutus and Cassius saw themselves in their own actions. So it's kind of interesting because we don't always understand or we don't realize today when we're doing American history, perhaps, that George Washington is our Cincinnatus, our farmer citizen who did his duty, served as a general and then president and then went back to being a farmer. So it reminds us that the classical world was a part of everybody's education and life. It was it was really part of the culture. This is so true, Lizzie, and I'm glad that you brought up the example of Washington, who represents in many ways a classical figure for the reasons you mentioned. But if we think about the Montgomery Monument and so many other similar monuments with Latin phrasing from that era, that is to say the early era of our country's history, we realize that the nascent United States is in dialogue with the classical past and uses the classical past in order to construct an identity of its own. And you and I talk about this quite extensively in the book about this process of what we call reception or classical reception, which is a kind of receiving, in fact, it's contained in the word, it's a receiving of the classical tradition, if you will, but the monuments, both physical and virtual of the classical past, that serve to inform the construction of the present. And I use the word dialogue not without, without point, because for me, there's a, a living, a vibrant engagement with the past that, in fact, 
transforms what it is we receive and makes it our own. So it's not necessarily a passive receiving of a kind of heritage or tradition, but it's an actual vibrant reinstantiation of what it is we associate with, with the classical past. And that's an animating idea for us in this book. And I believe it's one that animated the hearts and minds of those, let's say, dedicators of monuments, builders of buildings, inscribers of statues that put so much Latin, for example, around the city from the earliest days of our country's history and that continue to do so even to today. I mean, there's so much that we can talk about in between the Montgomery Monument and more recent uses of Latin around the city, but it's, I think, important for our purposes and indeed for the purposes of our book to understand that this process is alive and ongoing. Absolutely. So as you just said, basically we have Latin from the inception of the city to today. So can you give me maybe some examples from the 20th century and even a contemporary example of either Latin or engagement with ancient literature? No, we know where we are in the late 18th century. How does this progress in the 19th and 20th century, aside from New York Public Library, which we've seen in the early part of the 20th century and today? That's such a great question, and there are many ways to handle it. But I might start with a monument near and dear to my heart. In fact, near to where we are right now, we come to the entrance of Central Park at 72nd Street, where one of the most beloved, I think, monuments in the park can be found. And that's the memorial to Waldo Hutchins, which was commissioned by his son, whose name was, of course, Augustus, in the early part of the 20th century. And it's a handsome marble exedra, which is to say a bench to sit on. In fact, there's a bench that is provided with a rather stately floor that has carvings representing different portions of the zodiac. Uh, it has at its back a beautiful bronze sculpture believed to be done by Paul Manship in his um, early years, representing perhaps the Greek goddess of time, Hora. It serves as a sundial. It too has a Latin inscription which I can talk about, but the exedra itself, that is to say the marble bench in honor of Waldo Hutchins, has a great quotation from the Roman philosopher Seneca, who lived in the first century AD and is known as one of the most famous and noteworthy proponents of Stoic philosophy. And he wrote, among other things, a series of letters, 124 in number, about different uh, moral issues, in which we find the quotation, alteri viva supportet si vis tibi vivere, which the Hutchins family saw fit to inscribe on their father's memorial. Now it means, and there's no translation by the way, it's just there in Latin, it means, if you wish to live for yourself, you must live for another. And it encapsulates, I think, for the Hutchins family and certainly for us today, the kind of civil servant that Waldo Hutchins was in the late 19th century. He was a member, an early and, and important member of the Parks Commission. He was a state senator and then a member of Congress. And I think that the quotation aptly captures 
his commitment to public service. And in preparing the article that I wrote, uh, in which I feature this exedra quite prominently, I had the chance to go down to the archives at City Hall. And I actually found the papers where the commission for the monument was approved. And there you can see the team of dedicators actually reflecting on whether this is going to be an appropriate quotation. In fact, they thought of something else from a different classical source, but they wound up rather settling on the Seneca quotation. So that's, I think, a good example of Latin from the 20th century. We're talking the first quarter of the 20th century when the monument was commissioned, but there's no translation. It's interesting that there's no translation. Does it assume that there's an audience that can read it, or is it something that's just for the family for them to know, or is, in a sense, Latin a symbol of something else at this point, or is it a combination thereof? You know, is it a combination of those different things? That's such an interesting point. I think that there is a kind of expectation of sophistication among those who would appreciate this monument fully. And we see that in many of the Latin inscriptions throughout the city, that yes, they often quote classical literature, and perhaps even more often if we think about the funerary inscriptions, biblical literature. They partake of a tradition of, if not sophistication, then at least education. And I often pass by that bench and I see people puzzling over the Latin. I think, you know, why don't we just have a translation there? But I suppose the family, at least in the beginning of the 20th century, thought that they could expect from a New Yorker of a certain background, indeed with a certain kind of education, some understanding of the Latin, which um, is certainly not the case today, may not even have been the case then. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It shows you, in a sense, there are multiple, perhaps, audiences, that anyone could appreciate the exedra and the sundial and the kind of beauty of the stone, but to fully understand and comprehend the monument, one needed Latin, and that was a certain type of education that by the late 19th and early 20th century was more of uh, an elite education, more of one that required means, was not so maybe practically focused. So that's a kind of interesting thing that shows us about the shifting engagement with the classical past. So it's an interesting change that we can see maybe in terms of the audiences or the populations in New York City. So this monument is a really rather extraordinary, beautiful one, and I've put some pictures up on the show note. But there's also a very contemporary monument that engages with classical literature, but not so much today. And that's the September the 11th National Memorial, isn't it? Yes, right. The city's, if not the country's, most important public commemoration is to be found at the National September 11th Memorial and Museum in uh, Basin Manhattan, where the Twin Towers used to stand. That was opened about 2011 and then formally really in 2014. The museum and the visit to the museum, which is harrowing in every way, ends with a representation of the blue sky that some of us remember so vividly from that morning, on which is inscribed with steel from that was rescued from the site a quotation from the Latin poet Virgil from the end of the first century BC. 
and his Aeneid, uh, which is just extraordinary, which is no day shall erase you from the memory of time, understood to be Virgil's. There is no Latin translation there. It's just an English rendering of the original Latin, nola dies umquam memorivos eximit aivo, which stems from the ninth book of the Aeneid, and an interesting passage, which I can talk about if you'd like, because it brings up a lot of questions about our own culture's priorities and what we like to convey in monuments and how we go about conveying what it is that's important to us. And so if you'd like, I can take you through that story. I think it would be interesting because so often we see quotations out of context. Mm. And it's a beautiful and moving sentence by itself, but it would be kind of interesting to know maybe what it meant in its original context from the first century B.C., as opposed to what it means to us in the early 21st century A.D.? That's a good question. So um, the Aeneid, as you know, is the kind of the or classical text. Indeed, T.S. Eliot identified it as the paradigmatic classic from antiquity, insofar as it seems to translate what the Greeks and to some extent the Romans were doing in philosophy and intellectual history generally into an idiom that was understandable for uh, an increasingly Christianized West. So it looks back to the Greco-Roman past and serves as a kind of funnel through which the classical wisdom is fed into the subsequent history of the West, which is primarily a Christian history. But in the late first century BC, it is the iconic epic of empire. It really defines, I think, for the Romans, this transition in history, rather understand, as kind of shift in identity from a republic where there were several people vying for power and an empire where power is concentrated in the hands of a single individual. And the Aeneid as such, although it tells the story of a mythical past, is nevertheless about that transition. And there's a crucial scene in the ninth book, which involves two volunteers for a very dangerous nighttime mission, in which they're meant, these are Trojans, which the Romans originally were, Aeneas, the kind of founder of the Roman people before there was Romulus and Remus. So Aeneas is a Trojan in exile, and he comes to the Italian peninsula and there has to fight, in fact, for the hand of the Italian princess that he never winds up marrying in the poem, but eventually will. And in the ninth book, there's this crucial scene in which these two soldiers who are very clearly identified by certain literary tropes as lovers in the Platonic tradition, sally forth and go into the Italian camp and slaughter the native Rutilians, they're called, in their sleep, overcome, some of them are, by, by drink. And so take advantage of this moment, this opportunistic moment at night, you know, not the traditional kind of Homeric scene of battle where two heroes stand over against each other on the plain in full daylight and view of the other heroes, but rather at night under the cover of darkness, they sally forth 
and kill these Rutilians in their sleep. The younger of the two, whose name is Euryalus, is attracted by the gleam of some gold that shines off the moonlight and picks up a golden helmet and some other accoutrements that he then carries with him and is ultimately betrayed by because the flash of the gold running through the, the darkness, again in the moonlight, catches the attention of an Italian guard. And so they stop the young boy, because Euryalus is really a boy, represented in the text as having the first beard come upon his face. And his older protector, as it were, Nisus, seeing his friend, indeed lover in trouble, sacrifices himself to attempt, of course, futilely, his friend, Euryalus. And so the two die, and Virgil turns as it were, away from the narrative, and he asks that the two be remembered forever, saying, let no day erase you from the memory of time. And it's this quotation that then is used for the monument at the National, the September 11th Museum. And there has been some debate about the appropriateness of that. On the one hand, what's appropriate about it is that it's neither Christian, nor Muslim, nor Hebrew, nor Hindu, nor Sikh, nor any of the religions that we encounter in this city and across the world, but rather it comes from the classical past, which in some sense belongs to everybody, and thus is an attractive source for a meaningful quotation. Whether or not a nighttime sally under the cover of night in which people are slaughtered in their sleep is appropriate then for the people who lost their lives on that day is another question. I used to give the, the New York Times op-ed piece by Caroline Alexander about this to my students to discuss you know, the inappropriateness of it and, oh, if only they knew where it came from, people wouldn't be so moved. And there was a time, I would say, a very brief time, when I thought that that was actually appropriate. I think I may have come round on that. I think that the quotation does work for exactly the reasons I mentioned, namely that it comes from this place that we can all lay claim to, this source, namely Virgil, and that it unites us in um, that memory or, or the memory of those that um, we lost on that day and continues and I'll speak personally here in my case, to be, uh, to be moving and appropriate. But I do take the point of those who say, well, it's out of context. You know, if only they knew their Virgil, they wouldn't have put that. I mean, after all, some gay lovers. But I think quotations can take on a life of their own in a different context. And I think this gets at the heart of what happens in this very complex process of classical reception. Things don't stay the same, frankly. They get transformed. And so much of what we handle in our book and what I talk about in particular in the inscriptions has to do not with the one-to-one -one reception of what was valid in antiquity remains valid today, but rather in a process of transformation and change and I think that that monument that we've just been discussing really exemplifies that. Well, and I think what you've managed to convey and share with us today 
also points out this point of dialogue, that mm. underlying theme, which is we have, which in these three different, four different monuments that in a sense you've talked about, the Montgomery Monument, New York Public Library, the Waldo Hutchinson's, and then the 9-11 Memorial, they each engage with antiquity in various different ways and in totally unique and original ways. So this idea that there's kind of one classical past that everybody's drawing on in a monolithic singularity way, it just isn't there. And that's one of the things that is extraordinary about antiquity and the classical past, which is it is this mutable, changeable treasure trove of references. And I think it is telling and moving in that perhaps the first monument erected by the United States in a memorial capacity is in a sense in dialogue with the most meaningful one that has been recently erected in the United States, literally blocks from each other as well. And so if you guys haven't been down to see these monuments, and I'll put links on the website, you really should go out and look at them because they are still so moving today. So Matt, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing this. I certainly look forward to walking around other parts of New York City looking up for the words that are all around us. Thank you. Thanks, Lizzie. It's been a real pleasure. I might say that soon enough you'll have a guide to the inscriptions, the Latin inscriptions, and some Greek inscriptions around the city of New York that I'm preparing, hopefully for the press, Fordham University Press, that will be divided by sections of the city and will, that will enable you to read the inscriptions with translations and also give you some commentary about the sources for the various inscriptions that you encounter. So be on the lookout for that. Well, that sounds very, very exciting. I always love a new guidebook to New York City, one that I don't know that much about. So this sounds exciting. I will certainly put a link up on the website, and I hope all of you will check it out soon. Again, Matt, thank you for joining us, and thank you all for listening to Antiquity in Gotham. This podcast was supported by a grant from the Classical Association of the Atlantic States. If you want to learn more about that organization, please visit them at caas-cw.org. 